I'm Ian Bushfield, the Executive Director of the BC Humanist Association. In this interview, recorded on Monday, June 18th, 2018, I speak with Wes McMillan, who served as pro bono counsel for our association at the Supreme Court of Canada, and with Michael Spratt, co-host of the Canadian legal podcast, The Docket. We discuss the Supreme Court of Canada's recent ruling that upholds the decision by law societies in Ontario and BC to reject a proposed law school at Trinity Western University. TWU is an evangelical school here in BC that requires all students to sign a community covenant that forbids sex outside of heterosexual marriage. The law societies rejected the proposed school as a means of ensuring equal access to the bar for LGBTQ people. The decision is historic for its recognition of the importance of fighting homophobia and for the limits of what can be claimed under religious freedom. Ultimately, the majority found that the harm to the LGBTQ community outweighed the impact on religious freedom claimed by TWU and its supporters. Specifically, the majority wrote, being required by someone else's religious belief to behave contrary to one's sexual identity is degrading and disrespectful. On behalf of the BC Humanist Association, I want to give a huge thank you to Wes McMillan and Caitlin Meyer, who served as our pro bono counsel on this case, and to everyone who donated to our campaign and who supported us throughout this intervention. To read more about our work on this case and our other efforts to defend secularism and human rights, visit our website at bchumanist.ca, like us on Facebook, and find us on Twitter at BC Humanist. We couldn't have done this without all of your support. Please consider becoming a member and making a donation today. On the line, we have Michael Spratt from the Docket Podcast in Ottawa, and I'm sitting here in the temporary offices of Wes McMillan. Wes, you are the counsel for the BC Humanist Association in the Trinity Western University case, and we just found out the result on that on Friday. Yes, we did. It was a good Friday. So... I'm the executive director of the BC Humanist Association, so we wanted to intervene in this case following the BC Court of Appeal loss. We went to Ottawa and we argued along the lines that Trinity Western is a bricks and mortar building and legal institution. It doesn't have feelings, it doesn't have a religion, and therefore it can't have religious rights. Did they like our arguments? Well, there are a total of four written decisions. The majority didn't engage with it. Uh, McLaughlin, who wrote concurring reasons, wrote reasons that are more very sort of academic as a, as to the process of, of weighing and, and these sorts of things and didn't really go there. Justice Rowe did. He he accepted uh, our, our submission and, and other interveners as well. Uh, we were not the only one that made this point, but that these organizations, institutions, legal constructs don't have uh, a freedom of religion in their own right. So he's the only one of the nine that directly engaged. And of course, then two, two dissented, as I read their decision, largely on the basis of what the law society was entitled to consider and saying, you know, their, their legislation says you consider academic qualifications and that's it. And admissions policies are not your concern. And so the majority decision was focused more around the harm done to the LGBTQ community, well, it seems like to me. Yeah, what the majority decision sort of addressed the issue in a way of saying, well, we don't have to address the issue of whether Trinity Western has uh, a freedom of religion right, but the TWU community does, which I, I find that a rather unsatisfying thing because there's no litigant known as the TWU community. The TWU community by TWU's own evidence is not homogenous. And it, it, it struck me as 
if, if organizations don't have the right, they're just going to rely on that decision to say, well, there's some community we represent. And may, you know, maybe that doesn't work for a Hobby Lobby type situation where it's a private for-profit corporation. Um, but you can imagine lots and lots of uh, litigants coming forward, be they you know, uh, nonprofit societies, things like that, just asserting that there's some amorphous, ill-defined community and, and therefore they're in the door on, on freedom of religion. So that's an issue I think needs to be sorted out, which is why I found Justice Rowe's decision at least satisfying and, and he actually dealt with it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a very interesting decision. And I come from this as, you know, a, a criminal lawyer who is engaged in litigation and often engaged with litigation that touches on charter rights. So I'm by no means uh, an expert on, on these sorts of reviews. But it's a decision that uh, I found slightly unsatisfying. It's one of those decisions where I agree with the outcome on principle. But um, the legal route to get there is pretty messy. And, you know, I think that there are, you know, some concerns raised in the dissent that have sort of been picked up in the academic community that, you know, might lead us back to, to this court at some point on, on other cases as well. That would be around this idea of administrative review and the approach on there. Yeah, because I mean, what what the the majority says, and I'll, I'll just say majority and dissent, even though that we have you know majority and then some con- concurring uh, decisions in the dissent, is I mean they I think they very fairly and accurately define you know what so- law societies do um, and how that you know they're public actors with an overreaching interest in in protecting values and fostering equality and human rights. I think that they do a good job of, you know, characterizing the the public interest in having a, a diverse bar. But then when we actually get into the weeds of what the standard of review is, it's there I find uh, some of the some of the reasoning in in the majority's analysis a little unsettling because what we're really looking at, especially in the case of uh, the BC Law Society that took its position sort of by referendum of its members. We're looking at a review uh, on a reasonableness standard. So not necessarily it's the correct decision, but it's within a spectrum of decisions that's reasonable. Uh, We're looking at a review of that reasonableness standard, but you have to ask, what are you actually reviewing? And in the BC case, it's a thumbs up or thumbs down based on a a referendum with no written reasons and no other features that as a criminal lawyer, I normally see in court that make sure that decisions are reviewable and most importantly, transparent. So that's where it it was a bit unsettling. And then in the dissent, there, I think, are some very good intellectual points about, you know, the difference between charter rights and charter values and and uh, looking at uh, some of those issues. But I mean, ultimately, it's a, it's a decision that, that I welcome as someone who is regulated by these bodies, as someone who believes in those principles of diversity. But it's, it's I think, a decision that's not uh, totally uh, immune from criticism. Well, McLaughlin and Roe both I think touched in different ways on that same question of charter values versus charter rights and how lower tribunals should affect this. And I've heard this concern from other corners in the human rights civil liberty sphere of just this could let bodies that don't really have the expertise to handle these questions make what might be a reasonable decision, but it's hard to test their work. You know, in this case, 
I, I found that Justice Roe dealt with it squarely, as did the dissent, saying this charter values, charter rights, that's a problem. These charter values are sort of ill-defined. Roe says it's fine for charter values to sort of inform the development of the common law, but we don't elevate it to a charter right. Because in this case, you know, someone could criticize the decision for saying, well, you found that a charter right was violated, and you found that violation was acceptable because of some competing charter value. That's a bit unsettling. So I, I'm, I have I have a problem with that. I appreciate a Justice Rose approach. I appreciate the dissent's approach on that. And then on the administrative side, you know, in this case, it's maybe easy for them to decide the case on a reasonableness standard because it really was a binary decision. It's a yes or no, not a. Uh, uh, it's not as if the law society had a number of options. They did actually, uh, and it's in the evidence, ask TWU, would you make this covenant uh, you know, non-mandatory, right. voluntary? And TWU said no. So it really was a binary decision. Uh, and, and they essentially said, well, it's reasonable to have said no. But would it have been reasonable to have said yes? I mean, these are charter, these are charter rights and theoretically at play here. I mean, we can debate whether TWU, in fact, has a charter right and who does in this case have a charter right. But, um, you know, I, I share Michael's concern. That seems a bit, it, it, it's a bit too too fuzzy in its logic. And, and you know, uh, I like the outcome too, but what sort of guidance are we giving to lower courts and tribunals in, in making these decisions in the future? Not being lawyers, but someone else. I mean, in this case, part of the majority's reasoning seemed to be, well, lawyers are special. Lawyers are much smarter than everyone else, right? <laughs> I'm not sure why we're special in that way, because we're not concerned about lawyers. We're concerned about people whose whose rights are, are being violated. You know, we're concerned about LGBTQ people and their participation in society, whether they choose to participate by going to law school in some other way. I wouldn't have thought going to law school makes them more special and, and more deserving of some protection, but um, there you have it. So one of the things I found interesting in the majority here, when you talked about the balancing, they even just in the quick header talk about this decision by the law society not limiting religious freedom to a significant extent. And they talk about how the mandatory covenant isn't absolutely required to study law in a Christian environment. But on the flip side, the un, you know closing down options to the LGBTQ community creates this actual harm there. And it seems like they've balanced the scales and set or set found that the balance of the scales is in such a way that the only reasonable decision, and they don't come quite out and say the only reasonable decision is this. Well, but on I, a quick reading of it, it kind of felt that way. Well, this is where I go back to my point. I'm interested in what Michael thinks on it too, but I, my point about it really being a binary decision. So they didn't have to wrestle with that. I mean, if the law society really did have sort of a panoply of, of remedial options there, um, you know, a reasonableness standard seems to you know become a bit more difficult. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's. Do, do they end up coming down saying no? The only thing that was reasonable was to say no. Um, we're not approving you. Uh, so that's where you know the the limit of sort of options available to the law society. I think makes the analysis on on standard of review less robust because it doesn't need to be. Mm-hmm. There's only two options. Yeah, I think that that was sort of a, a special feature in this case and, and made the court's decision easier. We also, I think, need to look at how this sort of administrative body might be different from other administrative bodies that come before the courts. Because, I mean, one of the things that the 
court benchers in this case is that you know benchers are elected they're accountable and that's not true of of all administrative bodies um so when we are dealing with law societies they're different than maybe some of the other uh places where this decision could have uh, some import uh and i think that that also made uh the law society or the the supreme court's decision a little easier and the material filed by TWU, I mean, um, when we're looking at the affidavits that were filed on behalf of students who wanted to go there, of course, those affidavits have to be true. But I wonder how much care was taken in finding the best representative individuals to submit those affidavits, because the court, I think, quite rightly pointed to some of those affidavits and said that, you know, these students uh, who want to go to TWU say it's a preference. It's something that they would have considered. It's something that they would have liked to have the opportunity to uh, consider along other law schools. And so the court, it was a quite easy decision, I think, for them to find that um, when you're looking at, you know, core religious beliefs and, you know, the protection that religion has under the charter, that this covenant wasn't unnecessary um, or wasn't necessarily something that had to be there for uh, individuals who are evangelical Christians to actually receive uh, a legal education. That That's certainly what I thought Justice Roe dealt with it the most head-on. I'm looking for the quote, but he, he sort of summarizes how the majority dealt with it, deals with it, and says, I wonder if that hits the mark. Um, I, I think the takeaway from this is that insofar as you have a religious preference, to the extent that preference causes, uh, you know, an ill effect, a harmful effect on, on some other group in, within society, that other group's going to trump. Be, be, and, and that did seem to be a real feature of, of, of all their writings, you know, for, for the uh, those who ruled in favor of the law societies, was uh, that that this was fundamentally a preference. So I, I think that's, that's sort of a feature to take away from this case is, is the... Um, the notion that religious preferences just aren't going to be given the protection that those on the TWU side would have hoped for. Well, because up until now, the definition of religion in a sort of two-way claim in Canadian jurisprudence is the Amsalem test, I believe, though. Yeah. Is it a sincerely held belief? And well, what does that mean? It means you pretty much say it's sincerely held. And here it starts to look a little bit more about maybe what is that sincerity? How does that take effect? And what effect does it have on other people? What I sort of said to a group the other day was religious freedom in Canada is kind of like the freedom now to swing, swing your arms. And you have that freedom until that arm connects with someone else's face. <laughs> yeah. This is where I have a problem with the way the majority says, well, there's a TWU community. Even Justice Rowe says TWU doesn't have a freedom of religion, but he deals with what he calls the claimants, which is... He says the individual claimants in this appeal, Mr. Volkanant, who is, uh, uh, you know, the individual who said he would have liked to have gone. And this says, and other members of the evangelical Christian community at TWU, which they're not litigants. There's nobody else there named as a litigant. So I have a problem with this because what if one of those, just one of those people brings the claim? They actually get named as a party as they ought to be. And they swear an affidavit saying, I sincerely believe this and I believe it's a requirement of my religion that I only attend school with people of the same religious faith or are who prepared to conduct themselves as if they have the same religious faith. D does that then glom on to TWU and TWU gets to say, there we go, now we have it, we, 
because that seems to be the logical to me the logical uh, you know flow through of, of saying in this case well we're gonna we're gonna find a breach as the majority does uh, of, of the TWU community's 2A rights mm-hmm. you know they're not homogenous they're not a monolith so I, I don't know where that particular aspect of this case that I find most troubling leads us in the future. That's what you were pointing out in our factum when you talked about the religious oligarchy of the board of directors essentially deciding what the TW community believes. But I guess that specific claim had more to deal with why TW is an institution. The yeah. religious rights there don't really make sense. But That was to say why an organization can't have the right because it's not a monolith. But we've still sort of treated something as... It's sort of a representative, almost human rights complaint type thing where you're saying Braden Volkanet represents all evangelicals at TWU. But, but I, that sort of claim is easier to make when you say it's because of a person's race. Because you are or you aren't, right? Whereas the religion is, well, you are, but you define it differently. So someone who says, geez, I'd like to go to TWU, that'd be my preference, doesn't, right, is not mm-hmm. infringed. Whereas someone who professes to be of the same religious faith says, no, my take on it is I have to, and I can't go to school anywhere else. So religion on the human rights and in the charter rights world, to me, has always been sort of rather different than all of the other rights. All of the other rights are really experiences negative rights. Just don't treat me differently because, right? Well, religion Mm -hmm. has has more of a positive aspect to it. It's not merely don't treat me differently. It's it's allow me to do these things, allow me to practice my religion. What do you think on that, Michael? Well, I mean, I think that it's when you're looking at the sincerity of uh, the belief and how that factors into the case, I mean, I'm I'm sort of in agreement with McLaughlin, who wrote a concurring opinion um, when she, you know, calls out the majority a little bit about their comments on it, because the majority seems to accept its uh, sincerely held belief, but they also accept that the covenant isn't absolutely required for the religious practice at issue. And she says, I mean, on one hand, the majority acknowledges that. This is a deep sincerity in the belief. But on the other hand, they sort of cast doubt on the insignificance of that sincerity. So I think that there's always going to be a tension there. And that might just be a factor of, of how we look at religion, because at the end of the day, religion, although it's in the charter, these are, you know, simply made up beliefs and not necessarily inalienable <laughs> uh, rights that, that people have. You know, when you look at the right to life, liberty and security of the person, that's very different than looking at, you know, beliefs that flow from a text that was written thousands of years ago that, you know, aren't uh, necessarily at the, at the core value of humanity um, or universal. So, I mean, I think that that tension is going to be there. And I mean, at the end of the day, my real problem might be with with the charter protection that guarantees or that puts, you know, religious freedom on on the same level as other grounds. But, you know, that is, I acknowledge, a radical belief and not one that has any foundation in our current law, given uh, how the charter is written. I don't think it's radical. (laughs) I don't think Ian does either. Michael Spratt taking a radical position is not really radical in and of itself. Yeah, well. Yeah, that is that is a fundament. I mean, that goes to the philosophy of this entire thing. Is you know, all the other rights um, seem to be something that no one has much of a choice over. 
They don't change over time. They don't evolve. I mean, it races your race. You're born that way. That's what you are. But uh, you're quite right. It has no founding in our law, so we have to we have to wrestle with it. But this is where I, I, I'm going to sound like broken record, but I harp on the point about saying, you know, finding the organization doesn't have the right or refusing to decide it, but dealing with a community, or as Justice Rowe does, the claimants solves none of the problems. And and it's it's solved in this case because the court says, well, this doesn't seem to be all that important. But that doesn't solve the problem at all of what you do with a you know, the protection of the communal aspect of freedom of religion when you don't have a homogenous community and their particular take or nuance on the beliefs or practices required by that religion. Yeah, I found it interesting that Roe came right out first to say there's no institutional right, but then went through, well, what if there's this right of the individuals, the claimants? And I was wondering if he's almost using that as a caveat, like, even if you disregard this whole thing I just said about why it should be thrown out now, here's the other reasons it should be thrown out. Whereas the others all kind of went the other way. Even the dissent all looked from the individual because they didn't want to deal with this institutional question of whether it has a religion or not. And I think even the dissent said as much. But the dissent said they're co-religionists. I'm like, well, that ignores the evidence provided by Trinity Western, which says you don't have to have that religion to attend there. They didn't deal with, I mean, one thing that you'll certainly know, Ian, is, is a position I made in my oral argument was that if you are going to grant organizations a freedom of religion, you have to look seriously at their organizational purpose, which is more than just, you know, what what they say in their mission statement or what have you. But in this case, Trinity Western University is a, is a creature of statute. That statute can be repealed. And it says the object is to provide an education to persons of any race, color, or creed from a viewpoint that is Christian. So it seems to me that requiring people to sign a document, essentially adopting your particular creed, would be ultra vires and just we're not even talking about about freedom of religion anymore because it's contrary to the stated purpose of the organizational actor the court didn't want to bite on that argument which i found disappointing so we're still very uncertain today in my mind as to which organizations can assert freedom of religion and in which circumstances anything to add on there michael no i think that there definitely is quite a bit of murkiness uh, murkiness uh, after this decision. And, you know, I don't think it's actually going to have much of an effect outside of this specific case. If you're into administrative law and review, I don't think you're going to find much help here outside, you know, the traditional Dore analysis and, and those other factors. And I think when you look even at the dissent here, there are some relatively important points raised about, as we've talked, charter values and about, you know, not necessarily looking at the statute first, but looking at the charter first, because that's supposed to be the the supreme law. So, I mean, I think that there are parts from everything here that, you know, you can pull and use. But at the end of the day, I don't think that this is necessarily going to be the first case in, in the admin law uh, factum that is submitted the next time that uh, that a matter like this finds itself before the court. I think either side is going to be able to uh, to pretty soundly distinguish this case from other cases we see in the future. One thing this case didn't really do, almost surprisingly, is touch on the previous Trinity Western University case. Each of the justices at some point allude to it. Some of them 
almost quote selectively when it helps their argument, but none really grapple with that difference of why is it okay for TWU to have a teaching college but not a law school? And I realized the arguments were different at the time, and so the approach kind of led to a different conclusion. But is this something to be revisited, or is this still like a wide open question now of what happens if, say, Melanie Mark, the advanced education minister, goes, well, maybe be TWU shouldn't have an approved teaching college tomorrow. Hmm. Well, I think that some of the differences, and again, I am no expert here until some of these people get charged with a criminal offense, and then, uh, <laughs> then it, it, in my real house. But until then, you know, take what I say with a grain of salt. But I think that the cases, I mean, it is acknowledged uh, by uh, by the court, and I think that there are enough uh, distinguishing features there the difference between the sort of delegated responsibility of uh, a law society. I think it was noted in the in the Ontario decision that, that the uh, uh, Law Society of Upper Canada, as it then was, has been around since the 1700s um, and f- maybe plays a different uh, public function than, uh, than teachers' colleges would. And also, the argument in this case wasn't that graduates of TWU would have views that go against societal norms or discriminatory views and, and have those infect, uh, infect the practice of law. It was, it was solely around the covenant and, and the accreditation. Whereas in, in the previous case, uh, it seems that that was more of an argument advanced, that it wasn't just the exclusion of individuals from TW's teacher college, but how those individuals would be, uh, would be practicing and, and the confidence in the larger scheme of things about those individuals. And there is no argument that someone coming out of TWU law school would be uh, not competent or not qualified or for for reasons of you know lack of knowledge or for reasons of prejudice or bias. I guess the related question to that is if this is the grounds that the law school question was found on, was the decisions by the Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Maritime law societies, ignoring maybe the subtleties of some of their specific legislations, enabling legislations, were those unreasonable then? Would you know the LGBTQ community have grounds to overthrow their law society's decision to approve this school if suddenly TW? I mean, the question, the answer is the question moot, but well, it it, it is probably. moot, but it's an interesting question because would the court have come down in this case if it were flipped and the law societies approved it and then someone withstanding challenged it? Would they have said, oh? That's also a reasonable outcome. I think you read the reasons and you go, no, no. The, the seven judges would not have said, oh, well, also approving it is reasonable. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll never know for sure, but I, I feel comfortable with that. But then who would have standing to challenge those other provinces? Would it have to be someone who like applied to TWU but then got kicked out because they violated the covenant? I, who would have but... the public interest standing to challenge a decision of the law society to approve an institution that doesn't yet exist, right? It's, it's an application mm-hmm. so that it can exist and, and graduate students. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting question that, you know, they don't need to deal with. So in Supreme Court of Canada fashion, they didn't. <laughs> I don't, Michael, do you have any thoughts on that? I find that, I, I've sort of found that interesting because the Ontario Court of Appeal, in their reasons, makes some comment like, 
this hasn't been challenged, you know, the decision to approve hasn't been challenged in these other provinces, which sort of just stuck out to me when I read, read the Ontario Court of Appeal reasons. Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult when you're dealing with a law school that uh, doesn't exist, will likely now not ever exist or have students or have anyone who, you know, was denied service on the basis of the covenant. So, I mean, I don't see it going anywhere, but you're dealt with a, you have a binary choice here, right? It's yes or no. And they found that no was reasonable, not uh, granting accreditation and that uh, yes would have been unreasonable. So, I mean, it seems that uh, should that case ever uh, come about, um, we have an answer. I think maybe one of the more interesting questions is what about other types of law schools that could be arranged. And, and this goes beyond, you know, the question of religious aspects. But when we're dealing with balancing of rights, you know, what about law schools that are uh, only for certain members of the population, whether it be a, an all-female law school or a law school who seeks to promote diversity by restricting membership? That, I think, might be a uh, a very interesting question that can that that would have different factors in play um, might lead to a different outcome. And I think the prospect of maybe having a law school like that is perhaps a little more probable than having TWU take another crack at the can. Well, apparently TWU is looking into making the covenant voluntary. I'm sure there would be a lot of, you know, subtle pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they've got to digest it. But what I find interesting about what you're suggesting, though, Michael, I mean, some of those might be caught by 15-2 of the charter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it was one set up for specifically Aboriginal or some other, you know, trip, sort of promoted marginalized a historically group, marginalized says? group, um, that might be okay. But obviously not all of those would be, uh, all the hypothetical law schools we could come up with, which is why I think it's really important that when they get another kick at it, they actually put some meat on the analytical bone of when these institutions can assert some sort of charter right like that, like freedom of religion in this case, and if they can, when and why. And I've said it probably three times now. I'm very disappointed in the lack of, of dealing with that issue in this judgment. But I almost wonder if that lack of dealing, if they just keep not answering that question, is almost answering the question of itself. If saying, if every time the question of institutional religion comes up and they just go, well, let's instead look at the individuals involved, or even like Big M, where instead of looking at the grocery store and whether it had religion, they just went, the purpose of the legislation, banning it from opening on the weekends, was not secular and therefore the government can't do it. So they almost seem to, are like setting a precedent to not answer a question. I I guess. I know that's not a great legal precedent. So for the law school, let's do a thought experiment here. So for the law school, they come along, let's say Mr. Volkanen says, I want to go to law school, but I cannot. And I cannot go to law school because the only law school I can go to in accordance with my religion's belief is one that is populated only by people who would sign a covenant such as this. Now, if no one's prepared to create that law school, Mr. Volkanen couldn't claim a breach of his charter rights. But lo and behold, someone's come along who's prepared to create that law school for him. Now, does that sort of elevate him as this prospective law student to, to the charter? I thought, in, I thought in SL, the court said, you know, freedom of religion doesn't require the government to sort of carve out a path uh, in order for you to practice your right. religion, right? Um, we won't get in your way, but we won't carve out a path. I don't know. I, I, isn't that sort of the thought experiment? Isn't that the, that the, the case that has to happen? Because otherwise, everyone's going to say, well, it's a preference because the proof is it's not required. They do go to law school. 
I mean, evangelicals have been going to law school for decades, just not at TWU. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is the thought experiment, and that's the the thought experiment that I, quite frankly, have not been retained uh, sufficiently to to <laughs> to engage in because it's a difficult one. I mean, I think going forward, what I would like to see is this. I think that we might see um, more litigation of a similar type or an analogous type. And I think that when you're an administrative body uh, looking at uh, making decisions with respect to that, what I would hate to see is those bodies looking at this decision, seeing you know the reasonableness analysis and that the court will look at you know paths to reasonableness, even if you don't articulate those paths to reasonableness. And I'm worried that this, you know, could encourage those bodies that make very important decisions that we know the charter uh, applies to and should be informed by charter values. I'm worried that, you know, when you look at the way the case law is going, that those that those bodies may not feel the need to be as transparent, as open, and may do what uh, what BC did. And I think, um, you know, the dissent in TWU called it a bit of a revisionist history to say that they fully considered things and didn't just, you know, pass the buck to a, an up or down vote by the membership. And I think that we would all not be well served to have uh, a lack of transparency and sort of after the fact justifications. And so I'm hopeful going forward that uh, that we won't go down that road. I, I don't disagree with your comments generally, Michael, but what do you do? I mean, one of the comments made particularly the Ontario Court of Appeal decision, was that like these are benches, they have a meeting, you record the speeches. They don't sit as some adjudicative body that writes decisions like a nine-member Supreme Court of Canada. And there's, there's lots and lots of these members. It's more than nine. I'm, I'm not sure how many in Ontario or BC. But what they did have was the speeches. They got up. They engaged with the issues. So for an adjudicative body, or not an adjudicative body, but I, I guess in this case an adjudicative body like, like the Law Society, what would you suggest would be uh, an acceptable alternative? I take your point with other sorts of tribunals and maybe ones where there's three members sitting there making a decision. That's, you know, to me, qualitatively different than having the benchers decide this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's other avenues that uh, the benchers could pursue, certainly in you know disciplinary hearings and readmission if someone's been uh, suspended or is applying for uh, for readmission. You know, there are tribunals that are set up that that author decisions that are fully reviewable and things like that. I think it's something that law societies should take a look at, because one of the things that uh, I think is very important with, you know, the the governance of the legal profession is the self-governance and keeping the state sort of out of that business as much as possible. Because one of the important parts about uh, the legal profession is that we're a large part of our job is to hold the state to account. Um, and so you, the, the self-governance is all the more important. And so uh, given that importance, I think that, you know, law society should be proactive in trying to find some solutions to sort of the problems that you've outlined with how you would do this and how you would author decisions and how you would have a process. I think it's probably in the law society's interest to, to be proactive and to start thinking about that prospectively. Well, I'll close us out with a couple of questions, but I have to say, of course, the lawyer would defend lawyers continuing to be self-regulating. It's just like the doctors would do the same and everyone else almost. But no, I think your points are valid on there as well about the broader importance of the legal profession. One thing I found interesting with this case is we'll all recall back in August and September when we had this weekend of uncertainty about who was intervening, or first it was 
just these nine groups and then it was everyone. But I think what came out in this decision was almost, maybe I'm just biased as an intervener, but the value of interveners, because we saw some of the language used by the LGBT groups potentially used in the majority's decision. Some of our arguments, the Canadian Secular Alliance was quoted by Malcolm Rowe. Do we think this is like, the, because this case did set the record for the most interveners at the Supreme Court of Canada ever, somewhat unintentionally, is this going to be a continued growth industry uh, for nonprofits <laughs> for non-profit, yeah. and for lawyers who don't want to get paid? Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, you don't think. I, I, I think this case benefited from the number of interveners because there were so many different issues and so many different ways to look at the problem. I think, yeah, there's there's judicial statements on it. I think the court's view on interveners generally is they stand up and repeat what the parties have said, and they don't they don't offer a unique perspective. I think in many ways this case is unique. I agree with Michael's earlier statements that this case probably probably isn't good precedent for a whole lot, even though, you know, people call it this watershed decision. Mm-hmm. It, it's um, I think it's going to stand alone in that and that the court's practice of fewer rather than more interveners will continue. But I don't know, Michael, maybe you have a different view. I mean, I do see the value of intervention in, in a lot of cases. I know that, you know, the Criminal Lawyers Association intervenes in, in a number of cases at the Supreme Court and, on, and especially the Ontario Court of Appeal. And I mean, those perspectives are pretty valuable, especially when you're dealing with sort of broader societal questions. But I mean, I, I agree. I don't think we're going to see this level again. This was a confluence of, you know, multiple provinces, uh, a highly uh, charged issue. And, you know, a very important and emerging issue. So, I mean, I don't think we're going to see it again. On the other hand, I mean, not all of the interveners made oral arguments. Some submitted briefs and it doesn't seem like much is lost by by letting interveners submit briefs. You know, I haven't heard a ton of arguments that that, you know, doing that or being more. Uh, liberal with who intervenes or not would clog the works. But, you know, what we might see after this is maybe a process to actually give some reasons by the court and be more transparent on that process about why and how they allow interveners. Wes is shaking his head. I'm, I'm shaking my head. I know how this came about. Justice Wagner made, <laughs> made a decision and I suspect that I suspect after people day. read the newspaper that the chief justice had a chat with him and said, "Well, we've got two choices. Well, we know that we can we can we, we, we can uh, we can sit at this and just uh, you know double down on this decision, or we can let everybody in, but we can't go back and let a few more in. Like just one or the other. I I think there were going to be nine interveners, but for the fact that no, no overtly LGBTQ groups uh, were permitted to intervene, and that that caused a media backlash. Well, the other thing. That's interesting in this case is this is the final decision with Beverly McLaughlin's name on it. And it comes out as a pretty split decision, four ways with some clear divides, not just on sort of between the dissent and the majority, but even among the people who agreed on these admin law questions. Bit of a whimper. Do we do we <laughs> wonder if the future of the internal Supreme Court poli- like one of the things of Beverly McLaughlin's time as chief justice was she managed to get the court together most of the time agreeing on things or at least not sort of splintering into eight-way decisions where you can't really tell what the law is do you think Wagner's going to be able to keep the court together or is this a sign that the future is confusing i i mean i think that uh we might be seeing more of these sort of split decisions concurring decisions you know three three two one decisions 
And that might not be a factor of uh, the new chief justice of Justice Wagner, but it might be uh, sort of indicative of who else is on the court. Uh, Justice Roe has issued a number of short, sometimes odd, uh, concurring decisions or concurring dissents. And I think Cote is aiming for, you know, the record for the most dissents, including in leave applications. She's dissented, I think, more than I've seen lately. So it might not be, uh, there might not be anything that the new chief justice can actually do about it. I agree. I think Brown is certainly unafraid to go his own way. Uh, and, and Cote, when she spoke here in Vancouver, I don't know, maybe over a year ago, I can't remember, but she was still relatively new and gave some speech to some lawyers. I can't even remember what about. Um, but she, she said that she showed up and she sort of called herself the troublemaker. And, and she, di- she also did say that she thought they should allow uh, more leaves. So I agree, I agree with Michael. It's, it's probably a function of, of, of who's on the bench right now. And, you know, from a, you know, understanding the law perspective, unanimous decisions are helpful, but it's not always better. Mm. Right. If you have these dissents, you have concurring reasons, it sort of leaves an opportunity for courts to uh, to take another look at an issue with a different fact pattern. Because one of the pro- one of the issues in law is you know, these, these issues are decided on a fact pattern. And that's the value interveners come and say, like, it's not just this fact pattern. But at the end of the day, it's a singular fact pattern on which uh, important issues can be decided. So. So leaving the door slightly ajar to reconsider it on a different fact pattern um, may not be good for the certainty of the law, but it may be, may be good for ultimately getting it right. Any concluding thoughts, Michael? Anything we didn't touch on that you'd want to add in there? We just need some rule about no matter how many concurring or dissenting opinions, we just need to give them a page length. I mean, uh, the Supreme Court gives, uh, gives all of us a page length to even argue the most complicated appeals. I'm done with reading 200-page uh, cases. I think we might see more of that if people go uh, different ways. Let's go back to the 1970s, where you have these seminal cases on important issues that are delivered in, you know, five pages. They did deliver the BCTF uh, decision a year back in like 15 minutes and just orally. So maybe that's what you want them to just say. Yeah, exactly. We side with, you know, the BC Supreme Court. Court we need better written appeal judgments so the court can just say, I agree. Any final thoughts, Wes? And want to give a plug to your new firm? Yeah, it's, it's not Wes McMillan's new temporary space. It's Allen McMillan Litigation Council. We've been open for a whopping 18 days. Yeah, that's it. 1550, 1185 West Georgia. Come on down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for having me in here and thanks for joining on the line, Michael Spratt. Thank you. Perfect. Nice talking to you, Ian.